Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Pray for us. You can go ahead and open your Bible to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Father, be with us this morning. Fill us full of the Holy Spirit to focus, to be all here. Uh, maybe even as we go over a passage of Scripture that we know very well, maybe we've read, studied, uh, taught before, heard other great teachers teach on, um, maybe even memorized, Father. I pray that you would draw near in a personal fashion, that you would illuminate the eyes of our hearts to understand your Word better, more clearly, uh, in more HD, living color than we ever have before. Um, to appreciate it, to see some of the glory of your character in this passage, but also to come away with very specific points of application for our own lives and for those that we minister to. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 7, and what we're going to talk about today is the right ways, three right ways for Christians to use the moral law. So again, this is kind of what we've been going for this whole time, so we're hitting it. the right ways for Christians to use the moral law in their own life. Or another thing, we call, you could call this antinomians antidote. Okay? Um, we talked about last week, you know, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. There's legalism on one side. There's license on the others, or you call that person a libertine. Another word for the same idea is to be an antinomian, which just means against the law. Okay? Now, uh, we're going to start in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Um, and antinomians okay, tend to have two big problems. The first thing is they don't rightly value the moral law of God in their own life. Their mantra is, I'm free. I'm free in Christ, man. I'm free of the law. I'm not under the bondage of the law. They love that. And they overplay that card in wrong ways that we'll explain. But then second, they don't realize how strong indwelling sin still is in them. Right? They, they, they overestimate, well, man, I've been changed by Christ. I'm a new creation in Christ. And they downplay the reality of this cancer that still lives in them that's fighting. Let me give an illustration that may help. Um, so 2004, I think, was the, the last time that America invaded uh, Iraq. Um, Jacob, how old were you when that happened? Five, okay, so I don't know how, if y'all have great memories of that, okay? But I had a friend that was in the Army when all that happened. And, I, you know, after a matter of months, Saddam was gone. He was on the run. You know, there, were, there was mission accomplished, banners being flown. And in some sense, America had won. Baghdad had fallen. Saddam's regime had fallen. The war was over, and yet the war was still raging, right? I had a buddy. He was actually in a tank unit, and he almost died uh, in a tank, like his tank got hit and he had to jump out of the tank and run and jump in another tank. I mean, the war had been won in one sense and yet the battle still raged. It was a mop-up operation, but it was still very dangerous. That's a great picture of what the Christian's battle with sin is like. The final victory has already been won. And yet the mop-up battle continues in your life and it can be very painful and very hard. And Paul is addressing some of the errors that antinomians make really in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, which we're going to look at today. Up until this point, he's really been hammering more on the problems that legalists have. 
okay? But just like he did in Galatians, it's like he gets to Galatians chapter 5, and he says, I've been hammering on the legalists for a while. Now let me turn and hammer on the antinomian. So let's start in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, let's think about this for just a second. Um, I think we've mentioned in here before, uh, all human beings are made in the image of God. One of the implications of that is even after sin and the fall of man, there's a shattered image of God still on the human heart. So they have some generic understanding of the law of God. Right, Romans chapter 1, they know there's a God. Everybody knows there's a God. They know there is some moral law. They know they've broken it. They know they deserve wrath. I think big things like murder, deep down, everybody knows it's wrong. And here's the main way you know. They might say, I don't think it's wrong for me to kill somebody else. Well, is it wrong for me to kill you? Yeah, you better not try to kill me. That, they instinctively know, right? But there are some finer points of the law, like coveting, that are not near as obvious, Right? So Paul's saying, I'm growing up in this legalistic, pharisaical, Jewish household, and yet I never really understood the whole coveting thing. Until one day, I'm reading the law, I'm meditating the law, it came home to me in a fresh way. Does that make sense? Okay. One of my kids, who will remain nameless to protect the not-so-innocent, this has been a few years ago, but he got in trouble. And uh, and in the discussion that he and I were having, I said, I want you to go write down what your priorities in life ought to be. Not what they are, what they ought to be. He said, okay. And he came back. And the first three things he wrote down was honor God. And this is this, I'm giving it to you verbatim, what he had written down in his own language as a teenager. Honor God, okay. Honor people. Honor my parents. Now, where do you think that came from? This is not a trick question. Uh, yeah, I mean, the moral law of God. They, 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 they've been hearing that taught, right? I mean, may, maybe could, they could have gotten on their own. Well, if there's a God, i got to honor him. I need to kind of treat other people. But the, but the specific instance on honor my parents, right? I mean, that, that just that comes straight out of the Ten Commandments. It helped them get more clear about what it really means to honor other people, honor authority in your life. Okay, now... Paul spends so much of his time, again, in the beginning of Romans, in the beginning of Galatians, beating up, so to speak. It seems like he's beating up on the law itself. He's really trying to beat up on legalists. But it can sound like he's anti-law. And so that's why he has to start and say, what do you think I'm saying? Do you think I'm saying the law is a bad thing? And he's like, may it never be. It's the strongest way you can say no in Greek. It's like, no, never. God forbid. No, that's not what I'm saying. The law is a great thing, okay? The law is used partially to expose sin in the depths of my life. Okay? Remember, we don't know for sure. Paul seems to be giving us some of his biographical story. And there's good reason to think that probably when this happened for him was when he even heard Stephen preaching and he got envious and he started coveting some of Stephen's preaching gifts and some of Stephen's knowledge of the Old Testament. And it led to literal murder in his life. Okay? Verse 8, but sin, he's personifying sin here. Almost like he's thinking of Satan. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Right? Have you ever had the thought, like you're looking for a parking space, you know, and you see some sign that says, no parking here, and you're like, that's the parking space for me. Nobody's going to tell me I can't park there. Who are they to tell me? Right? 
there's that rebellion in our heart. It produced in me, I'm in the middle of verse 8, all kinds of covetousness. Covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. Arrogant, boastful, thought he was doing great. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And the very commandment that promised life, right? Pause for a second. In what sense does the commandment promise life? If hypothetically you could be a perfect person, like Adam and Eve actually had a chance at, you could keep your own life, okay? But it doesn't do that for us anymore, okay? The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So he's going out of his way. Three different words. It's holy, it's righteous, it's good. In every way, there's nothing wrong with the law of God. There's something wrong with me. John Stott gives this great illustration. Imagine that a criminal is trying to rob a bank and he gets caught. But this is a very stubborn, ignorant, and stupid criminal. So when he's sitting in prison, he's like, I can't believe I got caught. I can't believe that stupid bank teller that tripped the wire. I can't believe the cop that got there. I can't believe these stupid laws that say it's wrong. No, no, no. The problem is you're a criminal. The problem is you tried to rob the bank. Don't blame the bank teller. Don't blame the police officer. Don't blame the law. It's your problem. But we all tend to do that in some form or fashion, right? I can't believe that God created me with all these desires and then said I got to channel this one way. That doesn't seem fair and right. He's God. We're not. Okay. Now, at this point in verse 13, he's been using past tense verbs. You notice this? For sin, seizing an opportunity through commandment, it deceived me. It killed me. Verse 13, he's going to start to make a shift. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, I think we've mentioned this verse again, but let me just say again. Part of the purpose of the law is to show me how sinful I really am. I've got the English Standard Version. Think about that phrase with me for a second. That sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That last phrase of verse 13. Does anybody have a different translation than the New American Standard that says something different? Oh, no, excuse me, i got the ESV right here. That says something different than sinful beyond measure, the last phrase of verse 13. Okay, I think it's the New American Standard that says utterly sinful, right? So sinful you can't say, ah, oh, it's just a minor thing. It's just like I've got a little, you know, I'm sick in my sin. No, no, it's I'm dead in my sin. It shows us how bad we are. Now, look in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. You see how he goes to present tense verbs there? I am of the flesh. Now, the... <clears throat> A lot of good evangelical, even reformed commentators will debate about the second half of Romans 7. Is Paul talking about a non-Christian, his pre-Christian life, or a real Christian? And then you have some people say, well, yeah, he's definitely talking about being a Christian, but he's talking about the difference in like an immature, legalistic, stupid Christian. That's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 7, the second half. And then in Romans 8, he starts talking about a mature, spirit-filled. But I don't think that's right for numerous reasons that I'll point out as we go through here. And the best commentators, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, would agree. No, no, no. This is Paul talking about his present experience. As a 20-year-in-Christ super apostle, 
writing the greatest letter that's ever been written. And he's saying, presently, I'm sold under the flesh still. Now just, just pause. Because that seems like it contradicts with other places in Scripture, doesn't it? Even some of Paul's own writing. But I, I think I used this illustration last week. When the man and woman first get married, the preacher says, you're one in Christ. And positionally, legally, they are one. Practically, they're not one. When, as soon as I'm saved, I'm a new creation, positionally, legally. I'm totally new. <laughs> Practically, I'm not very new. I got a long way to go. I'm like a brand new baby that's just been born, that if left to myself, I'll die. I'm an infant that's got to grow, and it's going to take years. Okay? Um, now, so, three things, right ways for the moral law to be used in a Christian's life. Okay, what does it do? It directs. It discloses and it drives. It directs, it discloses, and it drives. And there's overlap in those three, but there's a little bit of different nuance, and I'll explain what I mean as we go. Okay, so uh, verse 14 through 16. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Now, just Paul's, I mean, here's, here's the second way I think we know. This is Paul talking about a present, mature experience. Doesn't that sound like your own fight with sin? Right? Let's just think about like a fairly domesticated sin that we feel okay talking about in public. Okay? Think about gluttony. I mean, how many of us have ever had a season of our life where we're like, okay, man, I've just been gorging myself, right? Maybe like right after the holidays. Thanksgiving gets over, Christmas gets over. You're like, I've gained five pounds. I've eaten like a horse. Home of the January. I'm not eating any sugar. And then four days later, you're eating your words as you eat the piece of cheesecake, right? In some sense, it's like, no, no, no. I really want to be self-controlled. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And then you're like, there's another part of me that hates being self-controlled. I don't want to be self-controlled. I love cheesecake. This sounds like our personal present experience, okay? Um... There are so many things where we need the law to direct us, to tell us this is the right way to do it. It's not 100% intuitive. You know, one of the things Pastor Reader says often is when you come to Christ, you get a new heart. There's a lot of things you get. You get a new nature. You don't get a new mind. You have to renew your mind. You have to work at reading the Bible. Okay? There are some things, like I said, murder, that you might be able to intuit. But there are other things. How about the Sabbath? How about just the Sabbath principle of one day in seven you're supposed to rest? I don't think you can figure that one out on your own. You need the Bible to tell you that. How about this one? You're supposed to give. You're supposed to give a tenth of your money. You're supposed to give money sacrificially. And oh, by the way, you're supposed to like it. You're supposed to be happy and a joyful giver, not a begrudging giver. I don't know if you can figure that one out on your own. There are so many things that we need the Word of God to direct me how to best love and serve God and my neighbor. Okay? I need the law, even as a mature Christian, to continue to direct me, to convict me. Listen, sin doesn't sit on the throne of a Christian's life anymore. Its ruling authority has been broken. And yet it still does have power and influence in my life. It's like this guerrilla force running around trying to attack me. Okay? Um, now, one of the things that your typical antinomial say is, listen, Jesus is so good, 
The grace of God is so good. Justification is so real and so good. All I have to do is meditate on Jesus and justification, and that will eventually lead to my whole sanctification. Listen, that sounds glorious. There is an element of truth in that, but it's not the whole truth. The power, the motivation to obey comes from meditating on the glory of Christ, meditating on justification. That's where I start to get transformed by worship. But I still need the law of God to direct me. What does it really mean to obey in all the different nooks and crannies of my life? I'll give you another example. We had a guy through campus outreach years ago that came to um, Christ at Jacksonville State, and he had grown up in more of kind of a Latin American culture. And the guy that was discipling him, at one point they did a Bible study on pride. And this guy was just shocked. He's like, you're telling me pride's a sin? He's like, my whole life I've been told, be proud. Be proud of yourself. Be proud of your heritage. Be proud of being a man. Be proud of this. Be proud of your accomplishments. Everything was about, he would take pride in yourself. That was his culture. And he was shocked. He was obviously a new creation. There were so many things in his life that had changed. But until he had somebody do a Bible study with him and say, pride's a sin, it wasn't obvious to him. We need the law of God to direct us, okay? Um, sin is still real. It's a battle. There's power. We've got to have the law to help us. Remember, it's the walking stick. It can't empower us, but it can, it can direct us. It's a map. One, one author said, the law are like the train tracks that the train runs on, the train of your life. Now, What's the fire in the engine that gives steam to the steam engine to make it go? That's the glory of Christ. That's the glory of the gospel. But imagine if we had this gigantic, powerful steam engine and it was just sitting out in the grass out here. You could get that fire really hot and that steam engine is not going to move very far or very fast because it's just going to bog down. But if I take that same steam engine and I sit it on railroad tracks that are very straight, and they fit perfectly in the wheels. But there's no fire and there's no uh, power in the engine room. The train's not going to move either, right? i got to have both. I've got to have the fire in my heart, worshiping Jesus, thanking Jesus. I love you. Thank you that you love me so much. But then i got to have the direction of the train tracks. And that, listen, that's when you're cooking with Crisco, so to speak. That's when you start moving fast in the sanctification process. When you don't try to pit two against it. And listen... Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the evangelical world, even in the Reformed evangelical world, and this is what they try to do, guys. They try to pit the gospel and the law against each other. Oh, I'm a gospel person. I'm not a law person. I, we still need the law of God. I don't want to be one of these hyper-grace people. I want to be hyper-grace and hyper-law, right? In the right way. All gospel, all moral law, and that's the people that their lives start really changing, and they start really having an impact. That's the kind of guy Paul was. I want to be like Paul, all right? I want to be like Jesus. I mean, even remember Jesus. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Um, okay. Um, there are some sins. Another thing Pastor Reader says, it's so true and so right. For most people, when you become a Christian, it's like God will maybe pick one or two of your really big sins and he will just micro microwave them out of your life. Just instantaneously zap them out of your life. But then there will be other sins, and it's like God's doing the crockpot version. It's going to take your whole life. I bet we won't do this, but I bet all of us could probably give a testimony of, hey, there was this one sin in my life, and it seemed like it had a stranglehold on me. I was addicted, and then God just, you know, in a matter of days or weeks or 
jacked it out of my life. And then I bet we also, and I feel more confident about this part, we could also all give a testimony of, I've got a couple other sins in my life that I've been a Christian 30 years and I'm not really sure I've made but about three inches of progress. Right? There are some sins. Think about the sin of worry. There's a real domesticated white-collar sin that we don't really think of as sin. That seems to sneak up on us. Right? I don't know anybody that plans to worry. Right? I know people that plan to get drunk, people that plan to look at porn, people that plan to get high. Right? People that plan a lie for some reason. I don't know anybody that's like, you know what? I haven't worried in a while. Monday morning, I'm going to block off 30 minutes and make sure I get some good worry in. I mean, we, we don't like worry. It's, but it feels more like the flu. It's like, man, I was doing great, and it just snuck up on me. Next thing I know, I was racked with anxiety. Why? Because sin, it's dying, but it's dying a slow death, and it is still fighting inside of me. I need the law of God to keep reminding me. That's sin. Repent of that. Okay? The law directs me. Its intention in my life is a good thing. I don't have the power to obey it alone. So the first thing the law does, it directs. The second thing it does, it discloses. And again, all these points go hand in hand. There's overlap. We're kind of looking at the same truth from different angle. Okay, so um, start in verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now listen, that can sound like blame shifting at first, right? It's not my fault. The devil made me do it. It's not what Paul's doing. He's saying, I really am a new creature. Creation. I'm a new creature in Christ. My new nature is obedience. The deepest desires of my heart are to obey. So in some sense, when I sin, that's not really who I am. Yes, I'm responsible, but there's a sense in which that's my old man, my old nature, trying to pull me back down into the grave. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with the disciples? The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. I know you guys want to, I know you guys love me. I know y'all want to stay awake. I know y'all want to pray, but you, you don't have the power in yourself to do it. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, I want to do the right thing, but left to myself, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, I can't do it. I'm weak. I'm overwhelmed. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Again, this sounds far too much like our own testimony, does it not? Okay. John Calvin says, knowledge of sin without the law is buried. So part of what the law does, it's not just that it tells us the way to go. We start trying to obey the law, and then we realize how far we're still falling short. Do you understand what I mean there? It, it discloses to me the depths of my sin. I can't tell you how many times I've had this experience, and, I, and I've had lots of Christian friends that have had this experience. They're like, man, I'm going to set aside like a whole day to do like some fasting and prayer. Maybe I'm going to go away, get away in some lake house. And, and they're thinking this is going to be this great day of like spiritual intimacy and ecstasy and worship. And I'm going to read some. It's going to be great. And a lot of times what happens is you come on and you're like, it was terrible. I just felt distracted and bored and hungry and mad. And I had a headache and I was sleepy. And then it's like, I read about four chapters of the Bible. And then I was bored. I'm like, Dad, come on, that only took 15 minutes. What am I going to do with the next eight hours? And you start to realize I thought I loved the Word of God. I was feeling so spiritual. I set aside a whole day to go spend just me and Jesus. And then 15 minutes in a day, I thought, oh, crap. I would much rather be outside playing golf or be playing Xbox with my friends or doing ministry or anything. But now I told all my friends I was going to be here, you know, so I'm stuck. Well, 
What's the law doing? It's saying, you're not as spiritual as you thought you were. You're moving in the right direction. You thought you had a little tiny sin, but you only saw the tip of the iceberg. And it starts to disclose to us the depth of our wickedness in our heart. Okay? Look at verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So he's basically saying the same thing he already said. He's repeating it. I mean, you could, when you read this, I mean, it sounds like Paul's in a wrestling match. He's having a hard time. He is wrestling with his sin. Sin is driven deep in the depths of every corner, nook, and cranny of our hearts, and the law exposes it and discloses it to us. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I love that. Listen. Sin in the life of a believer is like your shadow. How do you get away from your shadow? You really can't. It's always right there. The... the the closest thing I can do to getting away from my shadow is find the greatest source of light and look directly into the greatest source of light, right? Because then my shadow will be behind me. In some sense, I won't be aware of it. But you know, if I look over my shoulder for just a second, up, oh, it's right there. That's a great picture of what it's like in the Christian life. To the degree I'll just keep my mind and my heart and my attitudes focused on Christ, the greatest sort of light and warmth and intimacy and insight in my life, I feel empowered. I feel motivated. But if you pause for a second and say, I wonder what's going on. There's sin right there. Never a breath away. Don't you guys experience this? Right? There's no neutral territory. Satan doesn't take a Sabbath. Right? It's not like, hey, I woke up really early this morning. I'm going to have this great quiet time. Satan says, oh, let's give that guy a break. Look how spiritual. He woke up super early this morning. Let's let him have 30 good minutes undistracted. Doesn't work that way. It, it is a fight to the death. Now, in Christ, we know we're going to win. But at times, it doesn't feel like we're going to win, does it? It's not always a walk in the park. Verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's, that is the clearest verse in here that lets you know this is a mature Christian. It's definitely a Christian because non-Christians could never say that. Non-Christians hate the law of God. And Paul says, here's what I know. I still got all these sin struggles and desires, but in the depth of my heart, I really, really, really love the Word of God. I love God. I want to obey. I love the moral law. I want to do the right thing. It's beautiful. Verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says, man, I feel like I am locked in this daily wrestling match and I can't get a break. I'm overwhelmed. So the law directs me in the right direction. Then as I'm going in the right direction, it discloses to me how deep my sin really is, how far I still have to go. I was in uh, Colorado... I guess it's been two years ago now for some meetings and one day afternoon we had a free day and uh, me and a couple of the guys said, hey, let's, let's go have a hike. You know, it was during the, it was about this time of year so there wasn't much snow or anything. Like, let's go climb up this mountain over here and it wasn't, didn't seem that high and we kind of got to the peak. You probably had an experience like this and it's like, oh, and it seems like there's a little peak a little bit further. Let's go there. And every time we got to what we thought was the peak, it's like, no, no, there's another peak. And by the time we finally got to the real peak, it's like it had been three hours. 
right? In the beginning, we're like, oh, it'll take us 30 minutes to get up there. Well, it did to the top of the first little hill. That's a great picture of the Christian life. You keep thinking, once I get over this next sin, I think I'll really, and it's like, oh, my goodness, there's more. There's more. Okay, but you just keep going. The third point, it drives. It drives us. The moral law of God drives us. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, it directs us. It discloses our sin, but it keeps driving you out of yourself and back to Christ. Now, this is what the law does before I'm a Christian, but in some sense, it keeps doing it after I'm a Christian. Here's what I mean. I, mean, I think you can feel it in the language, right? It feels like Paul is in a wrestling match in this passage, right? He's repeating himself. The good I want to do, I don't do. The very thing I hate is the thing I keep on doing. And look at where he's going to get in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You ever felt that way? Here's the way I say it to myself often. I'm like, I'm sick of myself. I'm sick of having to deal with this exact same sin. Thomas Manton, a great Puritan, and I think he was quoting Augustine, said this, God, deliver me from that evil man. Myself. You ever feel that? God, deliver me from myself. The biggest problem in my life, it's me. It's not my spouse, although I fight with her sometimes. It's not my kids, they get on my nerves sometimes. It's not some enemy on the campus who's persecuting me. My biggest problem in life is me. And that's what Paul says. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then he doesn't stop there. You can't end there. I mean, if you end right there, this is very depressing, right? Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's kind of like, here's the mental picture I get. It's like Paul is locked in this fight-to-the-death grappling match with somebody. And he feels like he's losing. And then for just a second, the clouds part. And it's like he gets this glorious picture of Christ on the throne saying, I got you. You're going to survive. And he's like, praise God, I'm going to make it. And the clouds close again. He's like, yep, yeah, I'm still down here on planet Earth, locked in the fight. Okay, but the law points me back to Jesus. It drives me out of myself. It drives me out of my own strength, just like it did before I was a Christian, and drives me back to only Christ can do this. I can't win this battle on my own. John Stott had said Christians should utter this cry repeatedly. I mean, you know, I've heard, of it. I had this charismatic preacher that I used to listen to sometimes. He was a very interesting guy, okay? But one of the things he used to say was this, you know, you got to get out of Romans 7 and get in Romans 8. It's like, Yes and no, I know what he means, right? The experience of Romans 8 is a lot more fun than the experience of Romans 7. But you never in this life are totally out of Romans 7 and all the way in Romans 8. Paul wasn't. And if Paul didn't get there, we're not going to get there either. It's going to be a continual daily battle. Okay. Now, let's keep going. Remember, the chapter verse divisions weren't even in the original. So chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, if I'm really in Christ even if you feel like you're losing the fight with sin in one or two or three or four areas of your life, you're not condemned, right? The Father never takes you back to the courtroom and says, I kick you out of my family. He's a good daddy who loves you, wants to help you. He's compassionate. Now, this is important, okay? What specific sin has Paul been writing all of this in light of? Coveting. Coveting. Paul, Paul didn't say, you know, I still struggle, you know, before I was a Christian, I'm, I murdered Christians. 
And every once in a while, I still struggle with that. Every once in a while, I have a really bad weekend. I get really mad at somebody at the deacons meeting, and I just go out and I kill a couple of deacons. You know, nobody liked them anyway. I'm really sorry. I apologize. We got some dead deacons here. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get better. Last weekend, I killed three. This weekend, I'm... No, that's insane. Now, why am I making this distinction? Because some people would say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian since high school. Okay. You're saying you became a Christian when you are 15, now you're 22. Tell me how your life has changed in the last seven years. Oh, it hasn't changed at all. I still do everything I did when I was 15. Well, you're not a Christian. There has to be some progress. There has to be some progress in the fight. It's not going to be perfect progress, but it's going to be real genuine progress. Okay, you can't take this and turn this into grace abusing. But that's certainly not what Paul is doing. But for the people that continue to struggle with these inward sins, anger, lust, greed, to some degree that is the normal Christian life. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, in light of everything we've been talking about this whole semester, what is he saying in verse 2? And specifically, I'm after, what does he mean by that last phrase, from the law of sin and death? The Holy Spirit, in the covenant of grace, has set me free from the covenant of works. I am not under a covenant of works, which, when I try to do good works, it's just sin, which leads to death. I'm not bound by that anymore. I'm set free from that. I interact with God based on the covenant of grace, not based on the covenant of works. So where does that lead to? Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The moral law couldn't save us. Why? Because there was something wrong with the moral law? No. There's something wrong with us in our sin nature. I couldn't obey the moral law. Right? So I couldn't be saved by covenant of works and law because I was so sinful. So God did it for us. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Remember the way Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, Christ was born under the law. And he fulfilled the law for us. He fulfilled the covenant of law so that we can now be free. But before we read this next verse, got one more verse I think I'm going to done. This is not a trick question, okay? Class participation, okay? Even you, Austin, via Zoom, all right? Why did Jesus come and die on the cross? Why, why did verse 3 happen, okay? Why did God send his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and force sin to condemn sin in the flesh. Why did God do that? What's the goal of that? I promise it's not a sure question. To redeem his people. Okay, to redeem his people. Yes. Why else? This is, he loves us. Okay, he loves us. Yes. Why else? This is one of those questions that has more than one right answer. Set us free. What's that? To set us free. Okay, to set us free. Yes. Why else? He said he would. Okay. okay. He, he's keeping his promises. Yes. Very good. You know, John Piper wrote the book, 50 Reasons Christ Had to Come to Die. So he came up with 50 reasons. We got four. Anybody want to go for another one? Bring us to God. Okay. Give us enemies with God. Now, I'm going to read verse 4, and then I want us to answer this question again. Okay? In order that... The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do who walk 
not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, in light of verse 4, why did God send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins? Okay, yes, Jesus definitely fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. But what's verse 4 say? So that we can walk in holiness? That we can be holy. Listen, I think we all know that, but I don't think we emphasize it enough. One of the reasons that Jesus came and died on the cross wasn't just to get us out of hell and into heaven, but it's to make us holy today. That I can start to fulfill the righteous requirement of the moral law. Not perfectly, but really. Right? If, if somebody had, had a brand new baby and brought the little baby today, it's like, is that an alive human being? Yes. Is that a mature human being? Nope. But he's a real human being. He's alive. And he will be mature. That, that's us. We might be an infant in Christ, but progressively, slowly but surely, I'm starting to fulfill the moral law now. I won't perfectly fulfill it until I see Jesus face to face whether when he returns or when I get to heaven when I die. But I can have a real start right now. John Stott says it this way, obedience doesn't lead to salvation, but salvation does lead to obedience. The order is what matters, guys. Right? I think it was Charles Spurgeon who first and famously said, we're saved by grace alone, but that grace never stays alone. We're saved by faith alone, that faith never stays alone. Saving grace, saving faith, it always produces works. Good works. Now, application. Three questions just for you to kind of wrestle with personally. Be honest with yourself. Where have you lived like an antinomian? Like the moral law doesn't apply to you anymore. And if you're like, I think I, okay. Where have you at least been tempted to live like an antinomian? Like the moral law doesn't apply to you anymore. Second question. Where have you undervalued the moral law in your life and not let it direct, disclose, and drive you? Is there any place in your life where you're kind of downplaying the moral law? Yeah, I know the moral law says that, but, you know, it's like, uh, how do you really define it? Kind of playing fast and loose. And the third one would say, where have you minimized the power and reality of indwelling sin? That's not a big deal. I think I'll be fine. I think I can fight that and win it on my own. Okay? All of us need to wake up more, be more alert, more awake, more active to the ongoing battle with sin and Satan. Take it seriously. I mean, remember in, the, in the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, one of the ways that Jesus taught us to pray on a daily basis. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver me from evil. Now, you don't have to literally use that phrase every day, but that ought to be a part of your prayer life every day. God, prepare me for the battle. And know yourself. Know the sins you tend to struggle with and get tripped up in the most often. Lord, I, I, tend, to, I tend to get a fee, my feelings hurt way too easy, God. I tend to get offended. I tend to get mad. I tend to get bitter. I tend to have an unforgiving. Please help me not do that today, God. Please help me have more spirit-filled, thick skin. I want to have a soft heart, Jesus. I want to be sensitive to people, but I don't want to take it. You know, know, know what your besetting sin is and pray about it before your day even starts. Now, in conclusion... John Owen has this great quote. It's from um, his book on the glory of Christ. But, it, but he's commenting on Romans chapter 7, verse 24. This, this quote has meant a lot to me. It's helped a lot. Okay, just, just listen. It's a little bit long and wordy, but it's great. The nearer anyone is to heaven, 
the more earnestly he desires to be there because Christ is there. For the more frequent and steady are our views of him by faith, the more do we long and groan for the removal of all obstructions. Now, groaning, okay, is a vehement desire mixed with sorrow. For the present want of what is desired. The desire has sorrow, and that sorrow has joy and refreshment mixed in it. And this groaning, which when it is constant and habitual, is one of the choicest effects of faith in this life and what we attain to in Romans 7.24. And this frame, with an intermixture of some size, pain, sickness of this life, is the best we can here attain to. And that's long and wordy, but let me try to put it in my own words. He's saying... In some sense, Romans chapter 7, uh, verse 24, and then I think also verse 25, it's as good as it gets here on planet Earth. If you're going to be like Paul and John Owen, in some sense, every day there ought to be this kind of groaning. I'm sick of myself. I'm sick of this life. I want Jesus. I want to be with Christ. Why? Why? It's a, it's a groaning that has got some pain in it. I'm so sick of this fight with sin. I'm so sick of losing so much. But it's also got joy. I'm almost there. I can see him by faith. I can taste it. And John Owen says that kind of mixture of that pain and joy, that's as good as it gets in the Christian life. Now, in my experience, most Christians aren't living there. They are passive they're medicating themselves, and they're probably just saying, at least I'm better than the average believer in my church. I show up to church more weeks than I skip. I try my best to tithe. Shoot, I even give a little bit extra to a missionary sometimes. I don't cheat on my wife. At least not really cheat on her, you know. I try to be nice to people and smile and say hey to everybody. What more do you want from me? That's where too, what far too many people are living. And there ought to be more of a sense of, I hate the coveting, I hate the lust, I hate the gluttony, I hate the greed, I hate the selfishness, I hate the anger, I'm sick of it, I'm sorry, and yet I got so much joy because it's slow and painful, but I am seeing some progress and I can't wait to be with Christ face to face and be totally free, totally holy, totally lost in worship. All right, I used a diagram last week. I'll use one more diagram and we'll be done. Um, so. Awesome, we're going to uh, use one diagram here on the board. I'll try to make you see it today. We'll be done. So, some of y'all probably seen this before, but I think this is super helpful. Ignore that. So, when you become a Christian. So, here's the day you become a Christian. Here's your view of God. He's holy. Okay? He's bigger than you. He's better than you, right? Here's your view of yourself. I'm sinful. I got problems. Okay? So here's your view of Jesus. Jesus bridged the gap. Jesus saved me. Praise the Lord. But then as you grow as a Christian, you know what starts happening to your view of God? Oh my goodness. I had no idea. How holy, how pure, how beautiful, how wonderful, how, you know, immortal, invisible, God only wise, words can't describe. And at the exact same time, you know what typically is happening? Your view of yourself, 
more sinful, more broken, more screwed up. The law is disclosing more and more of my sin. I'm more wicked, more selfish, more stubborn, more evil, more just, you know, always thinking about myself. So you know what has to happen? Your view and appreciation of the cross and the work of Christ has to get bigger and better and more glorious. Are y'all familiar with the, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? I mean, that, that, that was always one of my favorite hymns uh, growing up. I think for a couple of reasons. I think because, have y'all heard the story behind it? You know, there's a family going to be on mission, and he sends his wife and kids first, and the kids drowned, and he writes it at the point on the boat where his kids are drowned, and he says, powerful. It's well with my soul. And so he's just thinking about peace, even in the midst of great suffering. But it probably, I mean, listen, I grew up in a church where you sang all four verses, right? But it probably wasn't until late in college, maybe, maybe my first couple of years after college, where I think it's the third verse really came home to me. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Now, I'd been singing that song probably since before I'd been a Christian. And I'd seen some of the glory in it. And God can give you peace no matter what kind of circumstances you are. But as I matured, I was probably 15 years more mature in Christ. And I started to get much more in touch with the depths of my sin. I don't think I'd ever even noticed that third verse before. But then it's like, that third verse is sweet. That Christ didn't just pay for some of my sins. He paid for all of my sins. That means something. Why? Because I'm feeling the weight of my sin even more. I'm in awe of the majesty and holiness of Christ even more. And so it makes me worship his finished work on the cross all the more. And what should that do? put a deeper, bigger fire and motivation engine in my heart to want to sprint in the way of his commandments. But it doesn't make me want to throw off the law of God. It makes me even more thankful for the moral law of God because it shows me the direction I'm supposed to sprint in. Let's say you're Hussein Bolt. You're the greatest sprinter in the world. And we said, Hussein, we're going to take you to the jungles of Vietnam where the brush is super thick. You got to have a machete to get through this. But you don't have a machete. Just run through the jungle. See how far you can do the 40-yard sprint now. Not going to be real fast. But if he's on the track, he's the fastest man in the world. In some sense, the moral law of God is like it clears the path for us. It shows us the track. So I'm not out there having to hack through with my own brain power to figure out what direction I go. Moral law doesn't give me the power. It gives me the direction. Cross gives me the power. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Help us love you more. Help us appreciate you more. Help us worship you more. Help us feel these realities more in our heart. Lord, I pray even when we don't feel anything, we'd still be driven by duty and discipline to obey your moral law. 
But Lord, I pray more and more than norm would be. We, we would feel joy. We would feel worship. We would feel the right kind of pain and sorrow that John Owen spoke of, a hatred for our sin, a desire to murder it, but a corresponding desire, even bigger and better, to please you, to honor you, to love you, to serve you as long as we live on this earth. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.